the reading of the scriptures from Genesis chapter 29, reading 1 to 30. Uh, may God give grace both in the reading and the hearing of his word as we have it here in Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And then he said, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone in my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall be your wages. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? <clears throat> Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, <clears throat> and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant 
uh, female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you again to join me in a time of prayer. Oh, Father, again, we come to you uh, with hearts of adoration and praise for our great God in heaven uh, and with uh, thankfulness for every good gift that comes down from heaven for us, preeminently the gift of the Son, our King, our Redeemer, our Prince, the giver of peace for the great gift of the Spirit, to give us new life through the new birth, who pours into our hearts the very love of God, and paths, uh, guides us in paths of glory and righteousness. And thank you for supplying everything needful for life and godliness. Uh, we have brought a measure in return. Uh, we ask your blessings upon our offering for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. We pray this morning through if you would remember uh, the sick, those uh, infirmed, unable to be here, uh, be near to them. Uh, we pray for uh, the many missionaries we support, watch over, uh, protect them, and bless their ministries in faraway places. Uh, remember our children and grandchildren. We pray that they would all be uh, blessed with the great gift of saving faith. Protect them, watch over them. We come here with many things that distress us. Uh, I just ask that in every case you would intervene and show favor to your people in ways that are wise and good and working everything uh, for our good. Father, oh, now we have come uh, to meet with you in the Word and ask that you would bless the Word, that it would go forth in great power, attended with the Spirit to give us illumination uh, into the uh, truth of the Word that we might grow in grace and faith and the knowledge of God, and uh, we would be all the more, uh, through the word, made skilled uh, for living in this fallen world as we uh, engage in the great journey of the exodus from this world to the world to come. These things we ask in the name of the eternal word, Jesus Christ, uh, to him be glory forever. Amen. Thy will be done. Lord, hear our prayers. The, uh, the biographical uh, sketch of Jacob's life before us is obviously written for our instruction that we might learn uh, a very important lesson, and um, uh, that is that discipline, God uh, disciplines his sons because he loves them, and that uh, uh, even more so, discipline is uh, very painful. And we're going to watch... Um, uh, Jacob, as he goes through a very painful experience in his life, uh, but is a, it's a reminder that uh, Jacob is fleeing uh, because uh, he lied and cheated, uh, if you will, committed an act of fraud uh, to gain a blessing from God. Uh, he didn't have to do that because God's word affirmed it. Uh, God doesn't. Uh, need uh, Jacob to uh, cheat for him, uh, but he does. It's a way of it's a way of man, uh, and so he goes to a period uh, in which God's going to discipline and, if you will, correct him. And uh, uh, 
Uh, it's not like a course in school lasts a semester. It's going to last 20 years. So uh, there's a lot God has to straighten out in Jacob's life, as is true of our lives. And uh, we're going to watch uh, that from the scriptures and hopefully in God's grace uh, learn from it. Uh, but first, we, we learn God's grace and providence. Uh, it's going to provide uh, for Jacob, for his son, to carry on the promise to make a great nation. Uh, that's going to occur as he goes to Haran. As you know, Jacob is single. He's uh, fleeing north uh, in hopes of uh, finding a wife. And uh, we learn that behind all of it, God is orchestrating all of the events and the timing and the presence uh, to do just that. Uh, we, are, we are reading some unusual events, uh, but uh, we know about God is behind all of them. Uh, reminder to all of us of the sovereignty of God over the tiniest of the affairs, like when someone goes to a well to uh, provide water for the sheep and how that water is provided. Uh, so he arrives in Haran, which is the hometown of his uncle Laban. Sees a well covered by a great stone. Uh, shepherds are gathering there, waiting for an appointed time. Uh, Jacob is a bit early. It counters uh, just that. Uh, he asks them if they know Laban. They do. In fact, they say, uh, by the way, his, his daughter's coming. Look, look over there. She's coming. She was a shepherdess. Uh, and uh, Jacob, with uh, either uh, an adrenaline rush or divine aid, removes the stone that typically took several men, uh, waters Laban's flocks, and greets uh, Rachel with a kiss and lifts up his uh, voice and weeps for joy uh, for God's providence. Uh, uh, he, he's encountered God earlier in a blessing that God was going to bless him. Uh, if you will, uh, the blessing comes to him in the flesh. Uh, in this uh, lovely, lovely young woman. Uh, and it's not, uh, it's not by the typical phrase that the world uses. Uh, well, it was, he was just lucky that day. It was just chance. No, there is no luck or chance. It's divine providence in which God is orchestrating the affairs of his sons and daughters. Uh, uh, because that is what uh, God is. He, is. he is the ultimate and only sovereign. Uh, there are some parallels here uh, with um, uh, Isaac's uh, journey uh, and uh, the gathering of a wife for Isaac. That God used that event to advance his kingdom. Uh, but it is, uh, it's entirely different. And the contrast should not be lost upon us. Uh, so it's a school that we can go to to learn the contrast. Uh, if you will uh, remember that event that we studied, uh, but the, one of the major differences is the servant of Abraham prayed that God would lead him and guide him to find a wife uh, for the son of his master. How important is prayer? Even though God is sovereign and providential in all things, one of the means of grace that he uh, gives to us to prosper his kingdom properly is to pray, and so the servant prays. Jacob does not. Uh, when God answered the prayer of Abraham's servant, he worships God. 
that's absent here in this text. Uh, that in all of the aspects of our life, we should uh, worship God for his faithfulness to us. Uh, reminder that uh, uh, here Jacob is flawed, but all of us are. Uh, we should be more like the servant than Jacob. Uh, the great uh, provision, but nonetheless, God is uh, at work. As a result of the encounter, Rachel runs to tell her father, uh, who runs to meet Jacob. We wonder why, why isn't he such a big hurry? Uh, if you remember back to the servant, the servant brought great wealth to Laban. He enriched uh, his daughter. He enriched him. I suspect he comes because he's thinking money. Uh, we learn in this text that Laban is driven by economics. Uh, the economics of uh, financial gain. Uh, he's also a sinister figure. Uh, he's behind uh, much of the discipline that uh, Jacob is going to confront. And he's going to confront it, as I mentioned earlier, for 20 years. That's a rather long course to learn uh, not to use worldly means like deception to advance the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, I suspect because uh, uh, because he thinks that Jacob's going to enrich him, uh, he rushes to meet, perhaps for a gift like a gold ring. Uh, uh, but regardless, that's not going to happen. Uh, Jacob is penniless. I've wondered about that. Why didn't his father enrich him like Abraham did his servant? I suspect his father was smarting because his son Jacob had tricked him and deceived him and lied to him. I'm only guessing at that. Uh, but regardless, even though Isaac was wealthy in his own right, he sends his son away penniless. A reminder by way of application, words of the Apostle Paul, uh, Galatians uh, 6, 7, uh, whatever a man sows, he reaps. And uh, Jacob is going to reap some very difficult lessons under a very difficult man by the name of Laban. So Laban knows why he's there. He's going to manipulate it for his own benefit. Uh, that's what the children of the world do. They are manipulative and sometimes deceptive, and that's the lesson that Jacob has to learn, not to use such means to advance God's kingdom. Uh, God doesn't authorize such. We use different means, like love. Uh, the world may lie, cheat, and steal, and think that it's okay, because the end justifies the means. That is not the way that God works. Jacob has tried that, and now he's got to learn a very bitter lesson uh, and that lesson learning is going to occur uh, over a couple of decades. And so Laban is going to lie to him, trick him, and cheat him in tandem with what Jacob did to his father and his uh, brother. It is a reminder that God doesn't gloss over Jacob's treachery. Uh, because God's uh, grace and mercy and providence are transformational to his sons. 
And we are going to watch as Jacob goes through this very difficult school. We're going to watch his slow transformation. Uh, and to the end that he will emerge from Haran a changed man. And yet, continue to change because God is changing all of his sons and daughters throughout our lives. So in verses 16 to 30, God's grace disciplines uh, the son of promise. Agent, as I've mentioned, is Laban. So he offers uh, Jacob uh, a job uh, to gain uh, his daughter as if his daughters are property. I mean, that's really the way he's treating them. It's a marvelous reminder, as I mentioned earlier. Laban is driven by one thing, uh, uh, the profit motive. He's going to gain a profit at the expense of his daughter. But he has two daughters. Uh, Lee is the eldest, uh, described in uh, less than flattering terms. Uh, Rachel was uh, beautiful in form and appearance, another parallel to Sarah and Rebecca. Uh, God is at work. Jacob loves Rachel, so he becomes uh, an indentured servant for seven years for her. That's the wage he's going to pay. Again, this, uh, this lesson of Laban treating his daughter as if she was a commodity to sell it's a lesson. There are greater things in life uh, than gaining a profit, certainly from your own family. But nonetheless, uh, besides being greedy, Laban is extremely cunning. At the end of the seven years, he throws a feast. I don't really get this feast because I don't really understand the outcome. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the outcome is uh, before us. How it happens, I don't understand. It's, what I'm attempting to say, uh, I, I suspect that um, uh, the feast was uh, uh, after a very hard uh, day of labor for uh, Jacob, so perhaps he's extremely tired. Maybe there were uh, adult libations and lots of toasts. I don't know that, but that would certainly be typical of a, of a feast. Uh, on the wedding night, Laban switches Rachel for Leah. I don't understand that, but I don't have to understand it. It's just the historic reality of what occurs. Uh, some commentators kind of amuse me that say, well, there was a veil involved. Well, you can figure that out on your own. Uh, uh, if there was a veil involved, certainly at some point it was removed, but nonetheless, uh, the outcome is obvious. So he is deceived. Remember, he deceived his father. Now, he's been deceived. Uh, it is a reminder. We could go all the way back to chapter 3 and verse 13, when God says to Adam and Eve, what have you done? And Eve says, the serpent deceived me. And so deception is a prominent part of the world in which we live. Uh, if you don't like the word deception, just try lies or fraud. It's the way that many worldlings advance their own well-being. Uh, but it is not accorded to the sons of God. Uh, and so Jacob is uh, learning this difficult lesson. And he answers the outcry, Jacob. I mean, you've tricked me. So his response, listen to his response. He says, 
it's, it's the custom. It's the way we do things in this uh, part of the world that the eldest or firstborn goes first. Jacob now should uh, be entirely convicted uh, because he reversed that order. And again, I would remind you of God's providence. The blessing was always to go to Jacob, but that doesn't mean he has license to cheat his brother. It was God's issue to sort out. And God is entirely capable on his own to pass the blessing to the youngest son. Oh, Jacob usurps the prerogative of God. Be careful of that uh, in your life. Uh, I, I think that recitation custom uh, that the eldest or firstborn goes first uh, had to have quickened Jacob because he's caught in his own devices. Now, we call that poetic justice. Kidner has written, through this man, he drank deeply of his own duplicity. And again, God does not use duplicity to advance his kingdom. That's what the world uses. It's not what God uses in his kingdom. So he's caught, but he drinks of his own duplicity. Uh, so he's going to a very difficult school. He's going to serve another seven years for Rachel. So 14 years, that's not the end of it. 14 years, he's going to have the wife that he loves. Uh, it's very interesting, there's another irony here. Uh, two sisters are going to bring strife into his life. Why is that significant? Because he created strife with Esau. So again, he's going to drink from the same well that he used in tricking and cheating his brother. Uh, the strife is kind of humorous and yet sad, but it is a lesson, God providentially at work, to transform the son of promise by the transformation of his inner being. That's grace because God is not going to leave Jacob to his own devices. He's going to teach him uh, that he doesn't have to manipulate and deceive and lie and cheat. It's very interesting um, to think of this word deception because it's uh, very prominent in the Scriptures. It took us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, uh, Eden uh, a moment ago. Uh, but if you know anything of uh, the history of Israel, uh, they began to practice deception uh, in a very, very sad a tail in their life. And they're going to be deceived by the false teachers that they flee to and that they surround themselves with. Um, one of the great lessons of God teaching them, uh, if you'd like to turn to Daniel chapter 8, uh, He's going to send a deceiver to them uh, in their own measure of poetic justice. Uh, Daniel chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. Uh, speaking of a civil governor, 
And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to the extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. And he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. It's an immediate reminder of Antiochus Epiphanes, who's going to trick the covenant people uh, to disobey God. Uh, one of the reasons that they are in uh, are going to captivity and have been in captivity is uh, by using deception. And so here God uses a deceiver to teach them. He's going to bring destruction. Also, a prototype of the coming Antichrist who's going to use deception to a manifold degree. Antiochus is a type of the end-time deceiver who I would remind you, very sad to say, is present in the world today, but even worse, not just in the world, but in the church today. It's a reminder, uh, in-time deceivers. Uh, uh, we know this from many sources. Obviously, Jesus teaches us this, but so does his apostle John. Uh, he says, you have, uh, you've been taught that uh, Antichrist is coming. And then he turns and says, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is a reference to uh, tragic deception and deceivers uh, that are everywhere like Antiochus. Uh, I, sad to say, believe that they are present in many Christian denominations. Present today in pulpits all over the land to a sad extent. Uh, false prophets and false teachers. After the Spirit of the force that energizes them in Satan himself, who was the deceiver from the beginning. Uh, God is at work here uh, in all of these events uh, coming back to Jacob as a reminder to how God teaches us uh, in like manner. He disciplines the sons that he loves. Uh, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, we learn this event. Jacob is going to undergo a course for 20 years uh, but God uses a similar method uh, in all of our lives. Uh, why is that? Because He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He disciplines us that we might learn properly how to advance His kingdom absent the ways of the world. Uh, Hebrews uh, uh, chapter 12, uh, going to read uh, verse 6. Uh, the author of the book of Hebrews is quoting a book of Proverbs, chapter 3. But nonetheless, for those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. To teach them of the proper ways to advance the kingdom of God. Uh, it's also uh, purposeful Slip down to verse 10. For they are disciplined, for they discipline us for a short time, as seemed best to them. 
but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. It's the point of the discipline. Uh, to generate holiness in the inner man or woman. Because God is holy. God is righteous. Uh, he doesn't use deception. He doesn't cheat or lie. Uh, he is holy, uh, utterly other than the world. And he's going to use discipline to instruct us uh, to change the inner man or the inner woman. And the majesty of his grace. Because of the fall, we are all flawed. We are bent and crooked. And God is going to fix that by working in our lives. It's purposeful for endurance and for holiness. Uh, God does it out of love. Uh, it's very interesting. The word for discipline comes from the word for child. A cognate for the word for discipline is that in the Greek text from which we have a, a word teacher. So discipline is a teacher. It's an instructor. It is a difficult class to go through, and but that's exactly what we are learning from Jacob. Uh, he's going to that school. Uh, sometimes we have to go to that school. Uh, but God does it for our good. Uh, it's a reminder that uh, God teaches us. Remind you of Titus chapter 2. Uh, verses 11 to 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's the course. That's the instruction. And thank God it is just that way because God is conforming us to the image of His Son, that we might be like Him in glory. And sometimes it's a very painful course. But one of the ways to escape that course is to remember, God does not use treachery and lies and deceit and cheating to advance His kingdom. That's what the world uses. We use love. The Gospel. Prayer the Scriptures, the grace of God. It's also good to remember that graduation from the Course is sweet. Every school child, every school boy, every college freshman, or the student at trade school longs for graduation. Jacob is going to graduate and leave Haran. It will be sweet in our lives when the Lord comes to us in glory. Greatest graduation event of all time is the raising of the sons of God, everlasting glory, world without end. In the interim time, what do we do as Christians? Uh, Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all men, especially to those who are the household of faith. So we continue in the kingdom of God using the means that He's given to us, looking for our great Redeemer and His appearing. 
uh, remind you of one of the great uh, biographical uh, events in the life of the church, uh, certainly in, in England, uh, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon went through times in his own personal life of great suffering. So much so that one day he wrote, suffering is the college of orthodoxy. And that is the true statement. God disciplines us to teach us the truth and to make straight, orthodox, what is crooked. Uh, and certainly, uh, Charles Spurgeon was a transformational person uh, in uh, the history of the nation of England. Uh, the greater solution, as you know, uh, is the God-man uh, who came uh, to a broken and fallen earth. And he never lied. He never cheated. He never manipulated. Never stole anything. Great lesson. Let's turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 9 in 10. But we do see Him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Uh, verses 17 and 18. And with whom uh, was he, pardon me, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Through suffering, the Father perfected and validated the humanity of Jesus. Not His deity. That doesn't make any sense. You don't perfect deity. It's already perfect. God the Eternal Son and His deity was infinite perfection and glory. But His humanity was untested. And throughout His life, short as it was, he was tested that he might learn. And it validated his humanity as the perfections of the God-man. Uh, he went the distance to represent us. He never broke. He never faltered. Even after a period of, you know, of 40 days and nights in the wilderness, he goes to be tested by Satan himself. A parallel to Adam and Eve in the garden. And Satan rushes into him with false promises and lies and deception, but he wards them all off by what? The word of the Lord, the word of God. Remarkable lesson for all of us. He suffered and learned in his humanity, but his deity adds eternal value to his sufferings, and so he is able to purchase all those given to him by God the Father. It's also remarkable for us to know that while his humanity was manifestly tested, that he never broke, and so the 
testing continued until its intensity, even to the point of the cross and crucifixion and the cruelness of the greatest of suffering, but he never once broke, always waiting upon God the Father and trusting the Lord of glory. A lesson for us as to how to endure suffering. And so he is called the author of our salvation. The author of our salvation. Because he went the distance, never broke. You and I break all the time. As sons, we are still forgiven. But God is at work in our lives, uh, teaching us not to use the ways of the world, but to look to him. Uh, the great example of his son, to use the word of God and to pray even as our Lord taught us in the immensity of his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane and so that we can learn properly and thus God is transforming us while the Son, eternal in all of his glory, never needed transformation by virtue of who he was. Uh, the word author can also be translated leader or pioneer. But he blazed the trail. In other words, we can follow in his footsteps. Do the things that he did. Even in all of our imperfections. We can always confess and repent and continue onward. Uh, and trust the word. Uh, there is no path of suffering in your life. No path of testing in your life. Well, you cannot see the footsteps of our Savior because he went the distance but never broke, teaching us to deny all ungodliness and worldliness uh, because he never broke, uh, teaching us to go strong in the word and strong in prayer so that we too might never break. Uh, reminded of a, a great uh, metaphor from the Second World War. Uh, Navy uh, frogmen were trained to be the first people who went to the beaches to destroy obstacles and to clear the way. So when the Marines and the soldiers landed on the beaches, that they knew that the Navy frogmen had preceded them, making the way a bit easier. And so it is with the Lord of glory, the author and the perfecter of our salvation, who has gone before us, and that all of the events of your life and all of the discipline you experience, you can know that he's gone before you. He's cleared the way, removed the great obstacles, and made a path. Great reminder from a cheap metaphor to be sure, but certainly it addresses in very compressed language the utter majesty and divinity of our Savior, whom in his humanity that he never broke. He always trusted his heavenly Father, and likewise we can as well. And thus he is awarded, awarded. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Awarded because he never broke. Remind you, in the grace of God, we're going to be awarded as well, even though we broke. But that's the majesty of God's forgiveness. If you don't know the Savior, you don't know the majesty of God's forgiveness. Uh, and in eternity, you will be broken. Uh, but it's a great reminder of uh, the imperative to flee to the grace of God, uh, to confess the Savior, uh, who alone can forgive sin. Uh, uh, but remember the contrast between Jacob and the servant. Remember the contrast between us and our Savior. He never deceived anyone. I love the text in the fourth servant song, Isaiah 53, 9. There was no deceit in his mouth. So we do live in a world of false teachers. Uh, therefore, hold fast to Christ because he is not a deceiver. Uh, walk with him and you are walking with the majesty of the truth of God. Uh, deception is rife, even in the church today. Uh, and so uh, we should look for the presence of the great Redeemer uh, who is not a deceiver. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't lie. He doesn't steal. doesn't have to. He owns everything. He is the personification of truth incarnate. What a Savior to trust. What a Savior to walk with. What a Savior to hold fast to. And let all the winds of deception and its swirling and men who lie, cheat, and steal not deter us because we cling to Him. He is our hope. Essence of the Gospel. Also, that the Gospel is transformational. As God is going to change Jacob, so He changes His sons because He loves them, uh, even though they undergo the deep, difficult course sometimes called discipline. But don't lose heart. Continue steadfast uh, because it's an evidence of the love of God. So the great lesson, biographical as it is, from the life of Jacob, is that God elects us, sovereignly so. He blesses us, sovereignly so. Uh, we are undeserving, but that's what He does for His sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. He blesses them, but He changes them because of His grace. He doesn't leave us to wander after our own devices and our own ways, no. He changes and makes orthodox what is crooked. And just like Jacob, he is always, always with us to the end.